Take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking this morning at the topic, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage. I was going to uh, point out uh, Peter and Elka, Miriam Lafferty's parents, but they're not here this morning. Um, Peter carried the torch in the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Uh, he had been a triathl uh, triathlonist. Is that how you say that? Anyway, uh, carried the torch. He, he has that torch down at his condo at uh, Taylor Glen. And uh, Elka was telling me this past Wednesday in the service I do for him on Wednesday morning that uh, when, when Peter, when his health was declining, the thing that bothered him the most about his health declining and having to give up his driver's license was that he could not do on Fridays what he did every Friday throughout their marriage. He would always bring her flowers all throughout their marriage, and that's the thing that bothers him the most now that he can't do. What a great example. Uh, let me say a few needed words up front before we look at this text today. If you're visiting with us today, uh, our text may seem like a very unusual text for Valentine's Day. And there are three things I want to say about that. First, I would remind you that these two verses are simply the next verses that we come to in the Sermon on the Mount. The approach I take in preaching is simply to preach through books in the Bible and passages in the Bible. And so whatever comes up next, whether we like the topic or not, whatever comes up next, that's what I cover. You know, I think it's one of the scandals in modern day Christianity, the way that we are functionally reducing down the canon of Scripture. God gave us 66 books in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, in some churches, in Sunday school classes or pulpits, they only preach those topics that appeal to them. And so what happens is you end up reducing down your canon of Scripture. In many churches that even say that they believe in the inspiration of the Bible may end up only covering about 10% of the Bible. Uh, that is a tragedy. That is a scandal in modern-day Christianity. I believe that you deal with whatever comes up next. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Secondly, let me assure you that while this is our text for the day, I'm going to take an approach that I fully believe was Jesus' intent. As you read these two verses, you would think that he is simply addressing the matter of adultery. And certainly he does address that matter. But I think it's more than that. While addressing the matter of adultery, his words are really a statement about the sanctity of marriage and the permanence of marriage. That's the real message behind these verses. And so today we're going to look at God's blueprint and God's design for marriage. And by the time we're finished, I, th I think you're going to be able to say it's a very appropriate message for a day like Valentine's Day. And thirdly, and, and this is so very important to somebody here today, this message is really not intended for those who have had a failure when it comes to some marriage in your past. That's not my real target this morning. Probably every family in this room today has been touched in some way or another by this topic of divorce. And one thing I've learned in 27 years of being a pastor, I've learned the links that people go to in order to try to save their marriage. You and I have no idea what some have tried to do in order to keep their marriage from dissolving. And so my caution to you is not to put all divorced persons in the same category. 
I know of people who have worked harder to save a marriage that did not last than many married folks do in their marriage that has lasted. This is truly one of those topics I think every one of us would have to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so we need to be very compassionate and understanding towards those who have gone through a divorce. If I could say this morning that I have a target audience that I would be aiming at, it would be uh, folks who have never experienced a divorce. And young people in particular would be my target. My intent this morning is that the message would be more along the lines of the old saying, an ounce of prevention is, is better than a pound of cure. What I want us to see this morning is Jesus' intent for the sanctity of marriage and the permanence of marriage. And I want us to see how marriage, how biblical New Testament marriages are a picture of the gospel. And folks, that's really what's at stake. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's bigger than you and me. As we're going to see near the end, out of Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church. And so the gospel is at stake. And so for the sake of the gospel in churches, we need to be very concerned about the sanctity of marriage. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? We're going to begin with Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Notice what Jesus says there. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now take your Bible and let's turn back to the passage that is the background for these words of Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And now turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Father, we're so grateful that in your word you give instructions as to what a Christian marriage and a Christian family is to look like. That our relationships would conform to your word. Lord, that we would be a testimony and a witness to a watching world. Lord, may the world see the difference that Jesus makes in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Professor Nick Stennett, chairman of the Department of Human Development and the Family at the University of Nebraska, along with Dr. John Dufresne, headed a research project to discover what makes strong families work. Now, though dated from several decades back, the conclusions of their work still brings high marks even today. Seems like some things never go out of style. Their team observed and interviewed 3,000 strong families in South America, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, South Africa and the United States. Now from their research they concluded that strong families have six main qualities in common with one another. Number one, there is a commitment to the family. Number two, they enjoy spending time together. Number three, they have good family communication. Number four, they express appreciation to one another. Number five, they have a spiritual commitment. And number six, they are able to solve their problems together even in crisis situations. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, strong marriages and strong families don't just happen. They take work. Now, all around us in the world, we are bombarded today with negative images of marriage and the family. I found this comment interesting from Dr. Harry Ironside. Dr. Ironside was pastor many decades ago at the famous Moody Bible uh, Church in Chicago, and he was a frequent lecturer at Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, on one occasion, a missionary in a pagan land sent Ironside the following letter. Now listen to what he asked of Ironside. He said, how we wish that some Christian people could come and live among us, even if not to engage in missionary work. There are different ways by which one might make his living among this semi-civilized people. For instance, we might have a Christian dentist and his wife or a Christian worker in leather, a shoemaker or a harness maker with his wife and family. It would mean a great deal to us to have a harmonious family join us here for we can conceive of nothing that could so commend Christianity to our people as just to see a Christian family living according to the New Testament. A Christian husband loving and honoring his wife. A Christian wife living in sweet and beautiful subjection and loyalty in her home. Christian children who really delight in obedience to their parents. Parents who love their children and seek to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This would be so utterly different from anything our people in this land have ever known. Well, folks, we see in that letter what's expressed in the Bible. And what's expressed is that a Christian marriage should be different than that which is found in the world. People ought to be able to see Jesus in us. Dr. Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Religious Liberty and Ethics Commission reminds us how important Christian marriage and even intimacy within marriage is. He writes, sexuality in marriage isn't ancillary to the gospel but is itself an embodied icon of the gospel pointing us to the union of Christ and his church and again that's why marriage should really be so important to the church because it is a picture of the gospel itself the gospel is at stake 
Now, it's been suggested by many commentators that as we look at these two verses in Matthew chapter 5, we also need to look at the same passage or a similar passage in Matthew chapter 19. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there too because we're going to look at that in a moment. But the occasion in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 uh, the occasion is probably very similar. Matthew 19, we're told that the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and they were using this question about marriage and divorce in order to test Jesus and to trap Him. Now I want you to notice what the Pharisees were intent on doing. The Pharisees wanted to talk to Jesus about divorce. But notice what Jesus does instead, especially in Matthew 19. Instead of talking about divorce, Jesus changes the conversation to talk instead about marriage. And folks, there's a model in that for us. The world talks about divorce. But in the church, we need to be emphasizing more marriage. That's why the pastor, John Stott, who's passed away in recent years, uh, he was also a prolific writer and scholar. John Stott said anytime a couple wanted to come to him in the church and talk about divorce, he required that first of all they talked about what the Bible says about marriage and reconciliation. And he said by the time we cover those two topics, usually the topic of divorce is not even needed anymore. And that's the approach Jesus is taking here. Instead of simply talking about divorce, he's talking about marriage and the sanctity of marriage and the permanence of marriage. Well, in that discussion, the first thing I want you to see this morning is the persons involved in marriage. The persons involved in marriage. In verse 31 of chapter 5, Jesus said, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, notice what Jesus says there. Whoever sends his wife away, whoever wants to divorce his wife. Now, that brings up the persons involved in marriage. Over in chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but... From the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now folks, what do we notice Jesus doing in this whole discussion about marriage and divorce? What does Jesus do? He carries them back to the beginning. He carries them back to Genesis 1 and 2. He says, I want you to see what God's intent and God's plan was from the beginning. And so all the way back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now underscore this next phrase, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so who are the persons involved in marriage? It is a male and it is a female. It is a man and it is a woman, ladies and gentlemen. Over in Genesis 2, in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God says that the subjects, the persons involved in marriage is a man and a woman. Sorry, Supreme Court, there is a court higher than you, and it's God's court. Now, by the way, over the weekend, Christians have lost a friend on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia. Go back and read his dissent back in June when the majority on the court approved of same-sex marriage. You ought to read his dissent of their opinion. Very prolific writer who was oftentimes a friend of the church. Sad his passing this weekend. But God's court is higher than any court in the land and God's court says the persons involved in marriage are a man and a woman. A man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Folks, that's God's word. God has even given his verdict and sentence of those who think that they can change that. And his verdict and sentence on that matter is not good, so be forewarned of that. God makes clear in both Testaments, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that his design for marriage is not changeable with the times. You change it at your own peril. Second thing I want you to see. The permanence of marriage. Back to Matthew chapter 5. The permanence of marriage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now there are six times in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uses some variation of the statement, you have heard it said. Six times. Jesus is doing that again here. And what he's quoting from or what he's referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy 24, God was actually laying down some stipulations to make a man stop and think about what he was doing. Remember, ladies, things were a bit one-sided back then, and so men had liberties that you did not have. The real point in Deuteronomy 24 was that a man could not hastily send his wife away in divorce and then think that at some other time in the future he could change his mind and have her back. Deuteronomy 24 introduces this certificate of divorce as protection for the wife and as a warning to men that you better stop and think about what you're about to do. It had been that a man could give a verbal statement to his wife, send her away with a verbal statement, and then get her back even if she had become another man's wife. And that second husband had put her away or he had died. 
And what God was doing in Deuteronomy 24 was putting a halt to these ill-thought-out, quickie divorces where men in ancient times, just by repeating a few words, could do their wife that way. Deuteronomy 24 instated this certificate of divorce that first of all was a protection for the woman that said about the woman, I'm not putting her away because she was an adulteress. Because you see, if that was the suspicion, she could be stoned to death. And so this certificate of divorce protected her against that. And secondly, the certificate made a man stop and think, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? Or am I just being hasty? Because again, God's established if her next husband puts her away, I can never have her back. And so the certificate was to slow things down and get them to ponder more and think more what they were doing. God wanted His people to be different from all the peoples who lived around the Israelites. And that applied to marriage. But now Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 stated that a man was not to put his wife away except under the case of marital infidelity. In Matthew 19, they came back at Jesus on this and they said, wait a minute, Jesus, then why did God give us this certificate of divorce that we could offer. In fact, according to the most popular school of rabbinic tradition reflected in a first century document known as the Targum of Palestine, they had interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as a command, not simply an allowance. What God had provided as permission to put her away had turned into a command or a legal right. Jesus responds by saying, It was only because of the hardness of your heart that Moses made this allowance. God recognized that due to the, to the fall of man and his sinful heart and his hard heart, this affects his relationships, even his marriage. But the point is, Jesus is saying this was not God's blueprint or God's design from the beginning. God's design was nothing short of the permanence of marriage. Jesus said only in the case of adultery should a spouse be put away. Now Jesus is not even saying here you must put away a spouse in the case of adultery. It's not a command, it's an allowance. If your spouse has committed adultery, they've already violated the one flesh relationship between husband and wife by introducing a third party. And so their adultery for all practical purposes ended the marriage bond. And so if you are the one who is sinned against, you can ratify their action with a divorce. But again, it was an allowance, not a command. In fact, let me say I've seen marriages repaired after infidelity and a marriage even become better after that if there was true repentance involved. Again, what does Jesus quote in Matthew 19? He quotes Genesis 2. Genesis 2 says there is a leaving and a cleaving. A man leaves the protection of his father and mother and he joins to his wife. He becomes one with her. He cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. The Hebrew word for cleave, if we were to put an image to it, in English thought, it would be the thought of literally being glued together. Now, folks, you glue two objects together, and what do you intend for those objects to do? You intend for them to stay glued together. That's God's intent. And so what is Jesus affirming here? Jesus is affirming God's plan, God's blueprint for the permanence of marriage. Now, you need to understand what was going on by Jesus' day. By Jesus' day, the rabbis had taken that indecency clause 
back in Deuteronomy 24 that we read a moment ago. They had taken that indecency clause that if a man found some indecency in his wife, he could put her away. And by Jesus' day, they had turned that indecency clause into just about anything and everything. Now, there was a conservative school of rabbis who followed Rabbi Shammai. They didn't do that. They taught that the sole ground for divorce was some grave marital offense. But the more liberal school of rabbis, that of Rabbi Hillel, said the indecency clause could amount to basically anything you wanted it to amount to. If your wife burned your supper, you could put her away. If you started thinking that your wife's nose was too big for her face, you could put her away. If through the years your wife had lost some of her physical beauty and you were more attracted to somebody else, you could put her away. If your wife criticized your mother or your father, that is if she criticized her in-laws, you could put her away. If your wife criticized you in public to where other people heard her criticisms of you, you could put her away. Essentially, they said, whatever you want to come up with, guys, whatever reason you need, whatever excuse you need to put away your wife, you can go ahead and do that and just fall back on this indecency clause out of Deuteronomy 24. Now, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, the liberal school had won out on this particular issue. And so everybody had gotten very lax on this. And ladies, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, it points out that even though you didn't have quite as broad of freedoms, the women were doing this too, to put away their husbands. And Jesus comes along and he responds to all of this and he says, no, 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 no. This was never God's plan. God created marriage to be permanent. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Folks, why do preachers say that in a marriage ceremony? What God has joined together, let not man separate. You know why we say it? Because Jesus said it. If you're looking for reasons to get out of your marriage, that is clearly contrary to God's design. Let me also say that your happiness or your perceived happiness is not the driving force here. As I said earlier, the gospel is. We're going to see in Ephesians 5 in a minute that your marriage is a picture of Christ and His church. Now let me say that the Bible gives one more justification for divorce and that's, that's in 1 Corinthians 7 and I'm just going to summarize what Paul says there. We don't have time this morning to get into all that but, but it is the case of abandonment. Paul says there in the case of where one marriage partner is an unbeliever. Now you need to understand what has happened. What has happened, there were two unbelievers that two unbelievers got married and with the preaching of the gospel and the missionary uh, influence of the church, it may be that one partner had become a believer in Jesus Christ and the other had not. And so now they're unequally yoked in the marriage, but they're already married. And so some of them were asking, does the believing partner need to walk away from the marriage and go find a believer? And Paul says, absolutely not. If the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, the believing partner is to stay. He says, you can have a sanctifying influence over the marriage. Now, folks, think about that. Because we, we oftentimes just talk about the world having a negative impact on believers. But Paul says this is one occasion in particular where a believing spouse can have an influence on his marriage and on his children. So he says stay in the marriage. 
A believer is to always be an agent of reconciliation. Stay in the marriage. But he goes on to say, however, if the unbeliever wants to depart, let him or her depart. The believer is no longer bound. And so two allowances are made in the New Testament for divorce, that being adultery and abandonment. But again, the Bible is not saying that divorce even has to happen under those categories. Because hopefully a, a couple would seek counseling and Christian counseling and try for their marriage to be reconciled back together regardless of what has happened. But God's testimony over and over and over again in the Word of God is for the permanence of marriage. The permanence of marriage. Now let me say a word to the, to the divorced in here. I am sorry if either in this church or any other church you've ever, made, you've ever been made to feel like divorce is an unpardonable sin. It is not. The grace of God covers that too, okay? There is hope and a new day and freedom in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we have to admit that from God's Word, God's plan is permanence. Stick it out. Make it work for the gospel's sake. Third thing I want you to see with me this morning is the pattern for marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you would turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. Now as we look at this passage in Ephesians 5, we see all the way down through verse 33 that Paul is comparing the husband-wife relationship with Christ and his church. It is a running analogy. Now, folks, don't miss this. This is one of the most important things to see in Ephesians chapter 5, that the wife has her model that she is to follow, and her model is the church, and husbands have their model that they're to follow, and our model is the Lord Jesus himself. We each have our model, and our marriage is a, is a running analogy. It's an illustration of Christ and his relationship with the church. Now, let's look at the admonitions he gives to each. First of all, for the ladies. Verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Actually, in verse 22, the word submit is not there. It is pulled down from verse 21. In verse 21, it is a participle. A participle uh, can have a verbal type activity. Verbal or an adjective or some of both. In this case, it's a verbal uh, participle. It is pulled down. In verse 21, it says we are to be submitting to one another in the body of Christ. And then in verse 22, he pulls down that participle from verse uh, 21 and says there is to be application in the home of the wife submitting to the husband. We submit to one another in the church. In the home, the wife submits to the husband. Ladies, you are, you are being admonished here to respect your husband and the role of leadership that God has assigned to him. And the command is in the middle voice. This is an attitude that a Christian lady is to voluntarily have. The wife is not commanded to obey her husband as children are commanded to obey their parents. She is to willingly submit to her own husband. She willingly subjects herself to the one that she possesses as her own husband. He goes on to say here, as unto the Lord. Now what does that mean? Are you to give the same allegiance to your husband that you give to Jesus? No, that would be idolatry. Rather, it means that your attitude toward your husband is part of your service to Christ. You actually honor the Lord by having this attitude toward your husband. Now, after giving that admonition to the ladies, he gives the rationale to it, beginning there in verse 23. And he begins with this illustration or analogy that I spoke of. Goes all the way down through verse 32. In verse 32, he calls this comparison of marriage with Christ and his church a mystery. It's something that was hidden that is now revealed. 
Now, folks, in that illustration, no one would question for a moment that Christ is the head of the church. We would affirm, hopefully Christians would affirm Christ is the head of the church. Well, likewise, in the home, the husband has been assigned or given the role of headship. It doesn't mean that he deserves it. Because one thing I can tell you, he doesn't. It's simply been given to him. It also doesn't mean he's superior or better or smarter. Likewise, ladies, it's not intended to be offensive. It's only to point out to us that God has a certain pattern. Now listen to what's said about that. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that God is the head of Christ. Now we know in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there's equality. God the Son is every bit as much God as God the Father. God the Spirit is every bit as much God as God the Father or God the Son. But listen to 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So what's he pointing out? that even among the members of the Trinity, there is voluntary submission on the part of God the Son to God the Father without diminishing the role of God the Son. Paul's pointing out what we learn in Genesis 2 about the order of creation. The woman was taken out of the man and presented to the man as a helper suitable for him. 1 Corinthians 11.8 says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. But so that the man will not feel superior, he takes his life again from the woman as she gives birth. And so there is a mutual dependency between men and women. Equal in creation. Different roles. Different roles, different functions in the home, but equality. Equality in creation, equality before God. But he says that's why the wife is told to voluntarily submit. She's submitting to this power that God has put in place even among the members of the Trinity. And so God has a pattern likewise for the home. Now in verse 25, he moves on to give the admonition to men. And men, you'll notice what he says to us is about three times as long. So ladies, you can rib us, I guess, about being hard-headed. We just need more instruction, right? Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. You know what word that he uses there for love? It is the word agape. The highest form of love. Agape love is self-giving, self-sacrificing type love. It's the type of love that's expressed in John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Men, he says, that's the type of love that we are to demonstrate to our wives. We are to look at her needs, put our needs aside. Put our needs aside for the sake of her needs and we're to meet her needs. And we are to love her even as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for her. He died on the cross. He laid down his life. He sacrificed himself for his bride, the church. And he's saying, guys, this is how your love is to be toward your wife. Your headship in the home is not to be carried out as people in the world carry out headship, demanding to be served. Your head, God may have made you the head, but it is a headship that is to be carried out and demonstrated by agape love as you're even willing to lay down your life for her. Just as Christ loved the church. 
And in verses 26 and 27, he continues to describe the cost of Christ's sacrifice. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, you hear what he's saying there about Christ's love? Christ's love was not just a one-time love on the cross, but it goes on. It extends even now to the church. Why? That he might present us one day before himself spotless and without blame. And what he's saying here, a husband's agape love is not just to be a one-time or some occasional thing, but it is to be the way of life with you and with me. And the rationale he gives, beginning there in verse 28, is because she is one with you. Remember, a husband leaves his wife, leaves his husband, uh, leaves his father and mother joins himself to his wife, they're cleaved together, they become one flesh. Paul is saying here, husbands, do you realize when you agape love your wife, you're also loving yourself. Men, when are we going to learn that? When you love your wife, you're loving yourself because she's one with you. When you look after her needs, you're looking after the needs of the marriage and the family. You're looking after your own needs too. You're being a blessing to yourself. And then we come to verse 32, that clincher again. Here's the clincher. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Men have their model. Jesus, women have their model. The church. We each have our model to follow. We each have our pattern. Now, I want to close on a light note. And ladies, cut me some slack on this one, okay? Because I'm going to turn around and I'm going to use this same thing in a moment against the men, okay? So just cut me some slack. Have you heard that they've opened a new husband store in New York City on Manhattan Island? It is a store where ladies can go and shop for a husband. It has six floors to it. Now here are the basic rules. As you go up from floor to floor, the men get better. But if you get to a floor and decide you want to go back down to a previous floor, you can't. The only way you can go down is to exit the building. Well, one day this lady goes in on the ground floor. As she goes through the doors, the sign reads, All the men on this floor have jobs. She thinks, that's nice. I want my husband to be able to support me. But she decides, I think I'll go up one more floor. The doors on the elevator open and she steps off the second floor and the sign reads, the men on this floor have jobs and love kids. Well, hoping to have children one day. She's so pleased she didn't stop on the ground floor but came up to this floor. But now her curiosity is up. She steps back on the elevator and she goes to the third floor. The doors open and she sees the sign, the men on this floor have jobs, love kids, and are good looking. Well, by now, she's getting more and more excited. She gets back on the elevator. She pushes the fourth floor button, starts her ride up. She gets off on the fourth floor, and the sign reads, the men on this floor have jobs, love kids, are good-looking, and they also enjoy housework. Well, she's just beside herself by now. She jumps back on the elevator, pushes five, gets off on the fifth floor. The sign there reads, the men on this floor have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead gorgeous hunks, love housework, and are also incredibly romantic. Well, you can imagine how she's feeling by now. She doesn't see how it can get much better. But she gets back on the elevator, pushes six, gets off on the sixth floor. 
The door opens, she steps off, the sign reads, you are visitor 3,989,000 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists for the express purpose of proving once and for all that women can never be satisfied. Now, folks, on a serious note, let's turn that around. Let's turn that around for a moment. Why in the world would a man do what Jesus is forbidding in verse 31 and 32? Why in the world would a, me, a man decide one day uh, that he was going to put his wife away. Let's be real for a minute and let's be honest. You know what I think it ties into? It ties back into the verses we looked at last week on lust. Somebody else has caught his eye that he's more interested in. He's not satisfied with the one God gave him. Isn't that the problem in a lot of marriages today? Isn't that the basic problem with human nature? You go all the way back to the garden, and God gave Adam and Eve everything except one thing. And Satan came along, and all of a sudden, that one thing God had said they weren't supposed to have, they wanted that. They weren't satisfied with what God had given them. And isn't that true oftentimes in our relationships? Men, women, the years go by. Maybe your spouse doesn't look like he used to or she doesn't look like she used to. Whatever reason, we're not satisfied. Isn't it far better to practice the marriage triangle where Christ is at the top, the man grows in his relationship to Christ, the wife grows in her relationship to Christ, and guess what? As each one of them are growing closer to Christ in their relationship with Him, what else is happening? They're growing closer to each other. I can't explain that in human terms, but I can tell you it works. It's a biblical principle. Men, are you following your example who is Jesus? Women, are you following your example, which is the church? Can I make a plea to you this morning to be satisfied with the one God brought you and through the years for a man and a woman to grow together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, to forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us, whatever faults, warts, blemishes and all, because guess what? We've got our own warts and blemishes and shortcomings. But we make a commitment together to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord so that our marriage can be a picture to the world of what Christ can do in a man's life, a woman's life, what Christ can do in a marriage and a home. That's what we need to commit ourselves to this morning. A marriage that is a picture of the gospel.